0: Sounds like it invalidates a number of things that I say week after week from this spot up here. And if you didn't know, the the fancy term for this area is the chancel, by the way. Every time I say from the chancel, grace and peace. Every peace be with you. Every the Lord give you peace. All of it rendered moot. Except, the only reason I say all of those things is because they are also biblical Phrases, biblical quotes. And Jesus himself, throughout his ministry, we've heard him say it in readings I can think of over the last few months. He tells people at various times, with various phrasings, that that they have peace. That he himself gives them peace. When he was born, what was it that the angels proclaimed was happening to the shepherds? Peace on earth! Isn't that what Jesus just said he wasn't here to bring? It's incorrect to lift up this particular passage, uh, as I've heard done sometimes, and and claim that Jesus kind of gives Christians permission to be sort of arrogant, hostile, abrasive people. Jesus didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Well, no, God's clear call throughout Scripture is for his people to be kind, compassionate, forgiving, gentle, and humble. Yet it's also incorrect to sort of elevate those passages and say that, therefore, Nothing which a Christian speaks should ever be divisive. Here's something of a principle for you. One Bible verse does not outweigh many Bible verses. Many Bible verses do not outweigh one Bible verse. Rather than elevating one over the other, seeking to pit them against one another, having to pick a side, instead we cling to Christ, to his words, all of them, and we, we seek to understand how both things can be true. We'll find that answer in this particular case very plainly at the beginning of this reading. As Jesus tells his disciples at the beginning, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. The sword, we find out through Jesus, looking at the context here, what we find out is that the sword that Jesus came to bring onto earth is not a literal sword, not a metaphorical sword. Or it is a metaphorical sword. Right? He's using sword in the same way that sword is used as a metaphor in other places of Scripture. In fact, in Revelation, Jesus is pictured with his mouth open and rather than a tongue coming out, it's a sword. It's Jesus' words. It's Jesus' message. And it's the message which we, as his people, speak after him, confess along with him, which is this dividing sword. Jesus connects this dividing sword to acknowledgement of him. Whoever speaks the message that he gives, whoever confesses what he confesses, whoever brings out of their mouth what Christ brought out of his mouth, that person is wielding the sword which Jesus speaks of here. This divisive sword is the message of Jesus about who he is, who we are, and what he's done for us. And this message... Has caused division, will cause division, does cause division, just as Jesus says, as he's either acknowledged or disowned. So today, as we look at this text, we're going to look at three things. We want to understand what exactly is this message which divides, this sword, why this message divides, and how this message divides. First, the what, right? What was the content of Jesus' message? What came out of his mouth? Well, Jesus said a lot of things during his time here on earth. He taught what it means to live as God would have us live, for one. He taught about what it means to live in family life. He taught what it means to live as citizens in society. He taught what it means to live in the church. He taught people how to pray. He taught people how to speak. He taught people how to love. In general, those are not the divisive parts of Jesus' teaching. Sometimes in the particulars, I'll grant you that. But all throughout history, people have looked at the, the what I'll call maybe the broad philosophies of Jesus' teachings on how we ought to live life and have celebrated it. His expression of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Many people celebrate that as an ideal, not only Christians. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, that's widely recognized by many people as sound advice in relationships to sometimes just put up with something, to be long-suffering. It's not Jesus' teachings on how to live life, generally speaking, that divide people. There was another element to Jesus' teaching attached to those commands, though. We find it in words such as these, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter God's kingdom. Or he says, No one is good except God alone. What Jesus attached to all these teachings about how to live life was the clear teaching as well that, While he might give us some instructions about living as God would have us live, none of us can actually do so. God only gives passing grades to A-plus students. And this is where Jesus' teaching starts to be fairly divisive. Because we all want credit for the good we do. And we do do good when we live life as we should. That was a little Dr. Zeus, wasn't it? But Jesus' standard here feels unreasonable. How can he expect perfection from us? Then Jesus' message, his teaching, the words that he spoke get really divisive. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or elsewhere, God so loved the world, he tells Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or, I have come to give my life as a ransom. For many, he says, here's the divisive teaching of Jesus. No one is good. No one deserves God's love, God's mercy, a welcome into God's kingdom. Everyone deserves eternal condemnation. Another facet of this divisive teaching of Jesus, he taught that hell is indeed a real place. The solution? Nothing about us. No deeds we perform, no sacrifices we offer, no decisions we make. Jesus' death alone is the price for our sin. Complete forgiveness as a free gift to you, purchased with his life. That was Jesus' message. That's the what of this message, right? Now, the why. Why does this message divide? Well, as I already said, first off, we all want credit for the good that we do. It it doesn't feel fair of Jesus that he's not going to allow our good deeds to factor in here somewhere. It feels especially unfair that he's going to treat us the same way that he treats people who we might think we're better than, right? That's one reason that this message is divisive, but I also hear often the objection that this is too exclusive a message. What about my very kind neighbor? It volunteers his time, helps to, to cut lawns of the elderly couples around them who happens, perhaps, to be a Muslim? What about your aunt, right, who put a roof over your head during a very hard time in your life, but when you get down to talking about religion, she thinks, oh, well, they're all pretty much the same, right, and all that really matters is being a good person. Well, what does Jesus have to say about those people? He has the same thing to say to them as he has to say to you and me. No one is good, not even one, only God alone. He says, I am the way and the truth and life. Right? If Jesus' message comforts you, and the very fact that you come to church at all tells me that you probably find some comfort in Jesus' message, then you know that it is a particular, an exclusive, divisive message. But it's still unequivocally good news. Right? It, it may be offensive to us when we think about good people we know who don't believe this message. But I'm going to put this one on you. Not everyone gets the opportunity to be such a good person. Right? We, we think about the people we know who are good people who don't believe this message. Not everyone has the time, though, to, to do those good things like cutting their neighbor's lawn. Not everyone can afford to, to house someone extra to put another mouth at the dinner table. Right? if all that matters is sort of being a good person, right? if that's the, the good news content that you have to deliver over to somebody, then what do you say to your cousin who's in lockup for assault and battery? He's never going to be as good a person as your lawn-cutting neighbor, as your kind, compassionate aunt. I think we ought to understand pretty clearly something about who we as humans are. Right? We are immortal. God created us, intending for us to live forever, and even though we die, God will one day raise all people, not just believers, but all people bodily, and have them stand before his throne. And then send them off to an eternal existence, either with him or away from him. We are immortals. C.S. Lewis, the Christian theologian, said, That we, it's so weird that we get all awestruck when we see a beautiful piece of art. We see a a fantastic building or whatever. Mods are going to eat that up. That's going to crumble if it's still standing when Jesus comes back. I bump shoulders with immortals every day on the sidewalk and I barely pay them any mind. And Lewis said, how crazy is that? That every person I bump into, I'm not just awestruck by their beauty, by their value, their worth. God is. That's how God sees all people. So you're locked up, cousin. Is your good news for him? Be better when you're back on the outside because that's not good enough for God. Right? God does not take so lightly sins against his immortal creations. God hates sin because sin hurts people whom he loves because he loved all people and loves all people. Be better after the fact does not solve the problem of the offense against God. Be better does not excuse assault and battery after the fact. Be better does not excuse you being dishonest at work. Be better does not excuse you being short-tempered at home, being selfish in the church, being slanderous as a citizen. Our sins insult and harm people for whom God himself shed his blood. We cannot be better enough to cover that up. So what we have in Scripture, as the Apostle Paul shared with us this morning, is an entirely different solution, an entirely different good news message. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's the the peace which Jesus does bring. An end to our Efforts an end to our striving for righteousness in God's eyes because God forgives us, sees us as righteous, welcomes us into his family for the sake of Jesus alone. That's good news for reckless cousins. It's good news for kind neighbors. It's good news for you and me because it's good news for everyone. And it's a message we're called to share. As Paul also wrote in our second reading, how can people call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You do a beautiful thing by sharing Jesus' message of forgiveness. Jesus' message of forgiveness for all people, with all people. It's a beautiful message. It's a message of love that overcomes evil of love, that reconciles of love, that heals. It's the message which the Augsburg Confession celebrated. And that's the event that we're marking in worship today. 493 years ago, the Christian church in the West was dominated by a different message. It was a message that said this. Some people are better in God's eyes. Those people are monks, they're nuns, they're priests, people who have dedicated their life to the church. And you common people, hoi polloi, you need them doing their extra good works to pass along God's favor from God through them to you. In Germany, some preachers, some theologians led by a monk named Martin Luther began teaching a different message. They began teaching that their work as pastors, teachers, preachers, theologians was not better ...than the work which anyone else did. No one's work was better than anyone else's work. No one was better than anyone else. Preachers and monks, they taught, needed Jesus' forgiveness... ...just as much as farmers, as merchants, as laborers. And that forgiveness, they taught, was not passed along through an elaborate church system. It was brought directly to people by God through the news about Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church demanded an explanation of these teachings. What these theologians produced was called the Augsburg Confession. It was a document that very clearly laid out their convictions about what the Bible actually taught. And what the Augsburg Confession also laid out was the desire of these theologians, these preachers and teachers, not to separate. Not intending to cause a schism, a division within the Catholic Church. They simply wanted to preach what they had become convinced The Bible indeed taught. There was a schism. There was a division. And today, Lutherans, those Christians who hold to the Augsburg Confession as an accurate explanation of the Bible, they are not members of the Catholic Church, despite the writer's desires. This good news message of Jesus divided. At that time, it divided kingdoms, it divided families, it divided towns, it divided churches it still divides today. But Jesus himself predicted nothing less. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Not that Jesus came wanting to do that. But he did come knowing that he would do that. He came knowing that his message would not always be received with joy. And some of you have personally experienced this. Your invitation that a friend join you for church is rebuffed. No, thanks. I don't think that I'm better than everyone. I've heard that one. Told me by someone who tried to invite a friend to this church. Your conviction that all people, all of us, are sinners who need forgiveness may offend a family member. I'm a good person. Why would I deserve to be judged? That Jesus' good news message is a divisive sword. And seeing it divide. Is not something we take joy in. It causes us heartache as Christians. It caused Christ heartache as well. He mourned over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings. So Jesus ends his words here with a promise. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses their life literally as a martyr as happened in the early Christian church with the name of Christ on their lips Or figuratively, as our hearts are pierced by rejection, by scorn, while we share this message. Whoever loses their life will find it when Jesus, our Savior and King, returns. Because what's going to happen? We're going to find we'll be brought together into a family that will never be divided. A family that belongs to God. A family which will seat itself at the wedding table of the Lamb and His bride, the church. And there will be forever acknowledged by Jesus before his Father in heaven. Friends, God the Spirit, grant us strength to cling to this blessed hope until Christ our Lord's return. Amen. I invite you to stand.